welcome everyone back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh, of course, here with... Dr. Scott. Welcome back, folks. Hi, guys. It's our first monthly vintage episode. It's here. We're back. It's been a week already and we're back. I know. <laughs> with more of more. That's what we're doing. That's more our goal more. this year. More more content. More so, of more. More of it all. Yeah. Give it to us. Like little we... hamsters on a wheel. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's absolutely what I feel like right now. No, we are we're super excited to bring this to you and to kick off this series. Honestly, I think these are starting to turn into my favorite to research. I don't know why. It's sometimes even more work than the regular episodes in a way, even though this we promise they're not going to be as long. It's just fun. It's like digging. It's detective work. I don't yeah. know. I love this stuff. Yeah, I and, and I think it's a, a great idea that you came up with it where we have our vintage series. We're going to do at least once a month a vintage, if not more. This month, you'll be getting one that this one is uh, truly vintage. And then our mm-hmm. next one is going to be vintage from a different perspective. And I'll save it until we drop it. So that's all I said. But let me give you a recap of our last episode. If you didn't catch our last episode on battered women syndrome, we looked at the syndrome that is much a site concept as it is a legal term. We covered the history of its inception, including the very important and significant work of Dr. Lenore Walker. And we talk about a textbook case as well as a controversial high-profile case of BWS. So please, when you have a moment, check out episode 96 if you want to hear more about that subject. And I would even go so far as if you are aware of someone that is in a dangerous relationship, and you don't know how to broach the subject, or they're not really getting the fact that you're trying to reach out, maybe introduce them to the concept through this episode. That's That's a way to educate people. Yeah, for sure. That would be lovely if we could even be a small part of that. Oh, absolutely. Them our way. All right, Dr. Shiloh, you chose this one. So break us in. What are we talking about this week? (laughs) This week, we are talking about the Devil's Gate Dam Murders. Local case where back here in Southern California. And I'd known about this case or these cases for some time, probably just from generally growing up in the area. But kind of a strange turn of events. My daughter has been following the psychic medium on TikTok. And she talks about being visited by various ghosts and communicating with them. And it intersected with this case. And so I thought, hey, I know a little bit about that. I'm going to start researching that. And that's how this idea was born. Stay tuned to the end of this episode because I have kind of an end cap on that for you guys. But just before we get into it, we want to just do a trigger warning. We're going to be talking about child murder and molestation, as well as just serial murder in general. But we are talking about a case that is decades old here. So let me lay the groundwork for you and tell you a little bit about this area of Southern California. I want to take a moment to describe this lay of the land here in Pasadena is what we're really talking about. And it's kind of twofold. So this is an area that, like I said, I grew up in and around. I was born in Pasadena, as well as my family settling here a while back. And we have some deep roots here. It also has a really interesting history and lore that I think adds to the mystery of just a place that's really primed for horrific crimes that nightmares are made of. So when we talk about how bad our subject of today is, just to talk about the area 
is just even more creepy. So hence the reason I'm, I'm allowing a little bit of time for this. So the Devil's Gate Dam is at the northern section of what we call the Arroyo Seco in the Pasadena area. And the Arroyo Seco is essentially a big green belt that includes a dry riverbed that runs from the foothills to the north, which most of Los Angeles County has this range of foothills to the north. And then it goes almost down into kind of what starts verging into the downtown LA area, like the Elysian Park area where Dodger Stadium is. So it really travels a great distance across LA County, but mainly through the Pasadena, South Pasadena areas. And in 1920, the Los Angeles County Flood Control District built the first flood control dam in Los Angeles County at Devil's Gate Gorge. This dam is named for an outcropping of rock that resembles, yes, a profile of a devil. <laughs> and you can see that if you have hike to this area, there's this rock that sticks out and it has everything from the horns to the nose to the mouth to like a devil's goatee hanging down. Looks very, very much like this. And the dam is visible itself from the 210 freeway as you make your way from Pasadena kind of up through the La Cunada area, if you guys are familiar with it at all. And along the Arroyo Seco, you have different things along there that are very popular. You have the Rose Bowl, so where the football game on January 1st is always played. Also a great venue for concerts. Also home to the Rose Bowl Flea Market that covers the grounds there, which is very popular. There's a golf course in that whole area. Also the Colorado Street Bridge, which is also famously known in Pasadena as Suicide Bridge, is along... It it actually spans over the Arroyo Seco. That bridge was built in 1913 and during the Depression has been known for, unfortunately, a lot of people ending their lives by jumping from that bridge all the way on up until today. For Pasadena Police Department, it's a real struggle to keep people who are experiencing suicidal ideation away from that particular bridge. But there's a lot of trails along the Arroyo Seco, nature reserves that run right through this whole area. Actually, about a year ago, on my birthday, what I wanted to do was go hike the trails over there along the Arroyo Seco. And so my family and I went and did that. But at the very northern tip of the Arroyo Seco, along the foothills, is where NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory is nestled. That's JPL. And JPL is a research and development lab federally funded by NASA and managed by the California Institute of Technology, also known as Caltech. Caltech is located in Pasadena as well. They develop spacecraft and rovers at JPL. If you guys have seen the movie The Martian, when poor Matt Damon is stuck on Mars and they're trying to figure out how to bring him back <laughs> and all those rocket science nerds are trying to figure out how to get the tools that he has to get him back home, that's JPL. So very famous history in the space program as well as Southern California. As well as the alleged employer of all four leads from Big Bang theory for oh okay yes, they're all they're all professors there at caltech Got so it. i'm gonna have to be very careful not to go off on a tangent because this has so many fascinating I characters know. in this story i know <laughs> the, the connection here to that i have always found absolutely fascinating is what we call the jack parsons connection so jpl jet propulsion laboratory was actually founded by a man named jack parsons and he's really quite the character and you should google images of him he looks like a movie version a 1930s movie version of a handsome villain oh my god he is the most Dapper looking rocket scientist ever. 
dressed to the nines, the little pencil mustache, handsome guy, tall, dark, handsome, and absolutely brilliant. Really, really brilliant. He was an American rocket engineer and chemist in the early 1900s here in Los Angeles. So he was associated with Caltech. Parsons was one of the principal founders of both JPL and the Aerojet Engineering Corporation, which was also a rocket and missile propulsion manufacturer. Parsons invented the first rocket engine to use a castable composite rocket propellant, and he pioneered advancement in both liquid fuel and solid fuel rockets. And that's just that sentence right there barely covers what he did because it is so important to us winning the wars that we won and having a a legitimate defense system. I mean, this guy was like just light years ahead of other people's thinking. Very brilliant, but also very, very eccentric. In adulthood, Parsons converted to a spiritual slash religious movement out here called Thelema or Telema. It was a new religious movement that was founded by English occultist Aleister Crowley in the 1900s. Now, together with his first wife, Helen Northrup, Parsons joined the Agape Lodge, the California branch of the Thelemite Ordo Templi Orientis in 1941. And at Crowley's bidding, Parsons became the leader of this chapter in 1942. And he ran the lodge from his mansion on Orange Grove Boulevard in Pasadena right there near the Arroyo Seco. So Parsons was eventually expelled from JPL. Hmm, wonder why? Whole other tangent we won't go on. And Aerojet as well in 1944 due to the Lodge's infamous occultist reputation. Lots of drugs, lots of orgies, lots of crazy witchy things happening around there, as well as his hazardous workplace conduct. I mean, this was like a mad scientist in many ways. He was experimenting with some very advanced things, but he definitely was not following protocols. However, he was under great pressure and limited time frame in order to develop these things. So there's a little bit of wiggle room for the reasonings of why he was fired in that way. Also, the FBI had suspicions that he was too chummy with communists. And Mm. interestingly enough, his circle of friends also included L. Ron Hubbard. They both shared girlfriends with each other and were reported to have had some of that occultist sex magic partying going on at Parsons' home in Pasadena. Yeah. I mean, like you said, there's so many rabbit holes here. I mean, we probably do a whole episode dedicated to Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard and how that all started here in our little area of Pasadena. (laughs) But we'll save that. We'll save that. Definitely. But why do we bring him up here? Because he and his quote-unquote suicide squad, who were a group of fellow rogue rocket scientists, used to test fire their devices in the dry bed of the Arroyo Seco in between Jet Propulsion Laboratory and the Devil's Gate Dam. So without going into too much detail... In the spring of 1946, L. Ron Hubbard and John W. Parsons performed a series of magical rituals with the aim of incarnating the Thelemic goddess Babylon, also known as the whore of Babylon from biblical scripture, into a human being. And it is reputed, this is in the occult circles, some people, not all, there's a lot of controversy in the occult circles, but some say that their actions opened up a portal of a demonic or an evil nature and that this entire area has been cursed ever since. Right. So like we're saying, there's a lot to unpack here. But let's find out what... Back to Parsons. Let's see what happened. Right. We'll say on him exclusively. So in 1952, Parsons died very young at the age of 37 in a home laboratory explosion. The police ruled it an accident, but many associates suspected that it was a suicide or murder. And although he wasn't the most responsible academic, historians have come to recognize his contributions to rocket engineering. For his innovations, Parsons is regarded as among 
one of the most important figures in the history of the U.S. space program. There's a really great book out there that has a wonderful sort of graphic, almost pulp novel cover that's about his entire life that we'll put in the credits that is really great reading. And when you read about him, you understand that he was absolutely driven to successfully develop these solid fuel rocket systems despite failure after failure after a failure. It's, I mean, it's a question today as to what drove that. Um, was it his narcissism, his greed, or his patriotism, or maybe it was a combination of all that and more? Yeah. I mean, he's a brilliant person, but he may be open to portal to hell. So, all right. Uh, honestly, if we learned anything <laughs> from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there are hellmouths all over the place. It's a miracle we don't fall in one walking down to 7-Eleven. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I, I'd love to know more about this. Like how many portals to hell really are there? And I don't know if they exist. Maybe he and Elrond just opened one wide up. But there's actually a TV show. It streams on Paramount Plus now. It's called Strange Angel. And it is about Jack Parsons and all about this period of time in Los Angeles, which is one of our favorites to watch. So Parsons' story in Pasadena and his connection to the science fiction writer, Scientology founder, L. Ron Hubbard, is even documented in one of my other favorite shows, Drunk History. <laughs> it's season four, episode two. The episode's called Dangerous Minds. So... If you like to learn history that way, like I do, check it out. <laughs> so as far as paranormal lore, like that, that's kind of the beginning of it, really. I mean, it's it's beginning contemporarily of it. But there's actually an area built into the side of the dam where there's a tunnel. So right next to the outcropping of rock that looks like a devil, there is a large gate that leads to a tunnel. And it's closed off because of this gate. But People who have gone over there have clearly like bent down the top of it so they could crawl inside and I don't know, go inside and freak each other out and hold their seances or whatever. So there nowadays paranormal researchers do go here to kind of check out this creepy tunnel that's right next to the rock and believing that the lore has at the very least really encouraged a lot of generations of occultists and wannabes to kind of go down there and do their rituals and probably stirring up some bad juju that they shouldn't be. But also, before we were even all here, the Tongva people that lived here believed that the running water through the gorge sounded a lot like laughter, which they attributed to the coyote spirit. So of course, anywhere here in the nation and Southern California, where you have uh, large Native American populations, you're going to have its own lore of the land that people might find, you know, paranormal or otherworldly. But this kind of gives us a good idea of just this area that we're talking about. And it's a little bit of wilderness. So there's always yeah. something to that. And it certainly was at the time. Now it's all completely surrounded by residential properties and beautiful, like a lot of great old architecture and the development mm -hmm. of Pasadena. But at the time for the Tongva, that was a place, anytime there was water in this sort of desert-ish landscape, there's going to be a lot of stories and investment in why that part is so important. So yeah. that would yeah. have provided like a, probably a source of water at the time. I mean, there's a legend about several children going missing and coming up murdered in this 
Syria in the 50s and 60s. But most of the stories have been passed down like in this fashion that like once you really dig and you start kind of trying to figure out what is real and what's not real, it all starts to unravel. However, there is very likely one perpetrator responsible for most of the actual legitimate disappearances and probably more that we don't even know about. So in essence, there really was a real life serial killer boogeyman in the area. Yeah. So part of what I had known about this story was, like I said, my mother grew up in the Pasadena area. She had two siblings, an older brother and a younger sister. And she explicitly remembers going hiking in this area. Her parents, especially my grandfather, would really take the kids all over wilderness, out in the desert, going hiking throughout Southern California as well. And she remembers being on these little trails and on the walks that were very family friendly. And her and her brother sort of running ahead and my grandfather telling them, hey, you guys, be careful because remember that little boy Tommy went missing. And my mom just says she remembers it scaring the crap out of her as a child that a boy had been on this trail and turned a corner and all of a sudden just vanished and was never found again. So that that was the story she always had in her mind. And when I started researching this, certainly the case of Tommy was really important. So let's start with the missing children. As legend has it, between 1956 and 1960, a total of four children were believed to have gone missing in the area of the Arroyo Seco in the Pasadena, Altadena area. The disappearances linked to the Devil's Gate Dam in chronological order were friends Brenda Howell and Donald Baker in August of 1956. And then a year later, Tommy Bowman, who disappeared in 1957. And then three years after this, Bruce Creeman went missing at a YMCA campground in 1960. So for Brenda Howell and Donald Baker, 12-year-old Brenda Howell traveled from Fort Bragg, California to Los Angeles for a visit with her older adult sister. And on August 6th, Brenda and a 13-year-old neighbor boy named Donald disappeared while riding their bicycles up the old San Gabriel Canyon Road. The Independent, which is a now defunct newspaper from the area, reported, quote, San Dimas Sheriff's deputies and Azusa police searched fire trails and weekend cabins in the San Gabriel Canyon area for signs of two missing children, end quote. So pretty quickly, investigators had formed the opinion that a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old had, quote unquote, run off together <laughs> because the family described these two as kind of being in puppy love. And that's what the cops went with, reportedly. So doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of effort put into this that they would maybe turn up, but they were never found and their bicycles were both discovered after their disappearance. Now, this case, that old San Gabriel Road area is actually 18 miles east of the Arroyo Seco. So truly does not have a connection to this perhaps cursed area, but it is along those same foothills if you were to go 18 miles to the east in the Azusa Canyon area. Now, Tommy Bowman is different because Tommy is the one who disappeared in 1957. He and his family had driven up from Redondo Beach to go on a hike, and he was reportedly walking one of the trails along the Arroyo Seco when he suddenly disappeared. I'll beat you to the car, Tommy told his two cousins before he disappeared. A party of 400 searchers was put together, and they searched the area between the dam and Angeles Crest Highway. Police dragged a lake, but nothing remained of Tommy Bowman. However, there were two witnesses that seemed like they had perhaps 
witnessed a kidnapping here. There was a 10-year-old witness, Johnny Bond. He claimed that he saw a boy in the hours after Tommy went missing. He said he saw this boy crying and in the company of a, quote, man who was dirty, end quote. Johnny told police that the boy wore a Davy Crockett belt, which was a factual detail that had not been yet made public. And then there was another witness, Mrs. Alice Davidson, who told officers that a man with blonde hair walked just six feet in front of her with a young crying boy who matched Tommy's description. So Tommy really was the only child who actually went missing from the Devil's Gate Dam area. Now, Bruce, Bruce Creeman, he's the last one associated with this group of missing children. On July 12th, 1960, 80 children went on a hike in Los Angeles National Forest near Buckhorn Flat. The children were with the local YMCA. And this was a well-supervised, well-organized hike. And little six-year-old Bruce Creeman of Granada Hills, California, hiked in a small group when his buddies noticed he was suddenly no longer with them. He simply vanished. And Bruce ended up disappearing 38 miles away from Devil's Gate Dam in the Angeles National Forest. Now, it really wasn't like to the east or to the west per se, but it was if you had gone from Devil's Gate Dam and taken one of the roads up into the mountains, that's how far back he was. The campground was like a one hour's drive up Highway 2 from Pasadena into the foothills. So these are the stories most commonly associated with this area, but you can see that really only Tommy is related to the Devil's Gate Dam. However, they're still likely related, but let's talk about this character and talk about why. All right, so it's time to introduce Mac Ray Edwards. So Mac Ray Edwards was born October 17th, 1918 in Arkansas, and there are reports stating that he sexually molested at least one girl before marrying his young wife named Mary in 1946 and moving to California a year later. Edwards was a heavy equipment operator and worked on several of the freeways being built across Southern California in the 1950s. So between 1950 and 1957, he resided in the Southern California cities of Pico Rivera, El Monte, and Azusa. Mac and Mary adopted two children together and were well-liked in the community. On March 6, 1970, Edwards walked into the LAPD foothill station. He lived nearby in a, a community called Silmar, and he confessed to molesting and killing six children. He pled guilty and was found guilty of three of the murders. Edwards confessed to murdering Stella Darlene Nolan, born 1953, who was snatched from the city of Norwalk while at work with her mom, who ran a sandwich stand at a flea market. When seven-year-old Stella did not show up for her hourly check-in with her mom at 9 p.m., she knew something was wrong. I mean, that's kind of freaky to us to think you're going to let a seven-year-old kind of run around on their own, but it's a was, it was a different 50s, time, right? you know, it was 50s. When police interviewed the Nolans about the possible kidnapping of their daughter, her mother recalled a strange conversation a week prior with a man she didn't know. You have a beautiful daughter, the man said, while he was patting Stella on her head. Is there any chance of my kidnapping, buying, or stealing her? She replied, not in a million years. She's not on the auction block. Oh, how creepy. It's creepy and and I wish there was more context to know, did he come across as creepy and she was angry or was it, did it, was it said yeah. in a playful manner? I mean, we would still consider that to be creepy today anyway, but like, it'd be interesting to have some more context. But going on, Edwards told police he threw Stella off a bridge in the Angeles National Forest. When he returned later and found that she was still alive, he stabbed her to death and buried her along the Santa Ana freeway on which he had been working. Police did find her remains in Downey in 1970 after he told 
told authorities where they could find her. Just tragic. Oh, so brutal. Poor baby. He then said that he stopped killing when he moved to Silmar with his wife and kids until 1960. However, you'll notice this time gap is a period of time that the four children mentioned at the top went missing. So we will get back to that. But Edwards eventually confessed to slitting the throats of Baker and Howell, the two that were on the bikes that police said ran off together. He said he dumped their bodies off Mountain Baldy Road. He said that he had paid Don to lure Brenda into the foothills where Mac then separated the kids and killed them both. Get this. So remember, Brenda was visiting her older sister. That was Mac's wife. Mac was Brenda's brother-in-law. So Mac even aided in the search for Brenda and Don in those hours and days afterwards. And they lived in Azusa at the time. Their bodies were never discovered despite him giving police directions to the approximate locations. As for Tommy Bowman, the one that disappeared in the Arroyo Seco and Bruce Creeman that disappeared up in Buckhorn Flat, he did not confess to these, but it was the same MO and he lived in those areas. So those are just kind of up in the air, but there is a little clue later about Tommy that we'll get to when Edwards decides to talk some more. Well, Edwards did go on to talk some more. He went on to confess to a murder in December of 68. He broke into the home of a 13-year-old girl, but ended up shooting her 16-year-old brother, Gary Rocha. Edwards said that he never intended to kill Gary, but to abduct, rape, and murder his sister. Thanks for being so plain with what your intentions were, because she was there, but she unfortunately was staying with a friend that day. She wasn't in the location, in the house. Then in December 1968, a friend of Edward's son went missing, Roger Dale Madison. Edwards then confessed to stabbing him and burying him under a freeway in an orange grove in Thousand Oaks, which is really far north Los Angeles area. And again, remember, he was working on these freeway projects and he would have access to large equipment and asphalt. So he used a bulldozer to bury Roger Dale Madison's body. 16-year-old Roger had simply left home in his motorcycle, never seen again. Edwards went on to confess to molesting and killing Donald Allen Todd, who was found dead in 1969. He was found shot to death under a footbridge not very far from his home. In March 1970, with an accomplice, Edwards kidnapped three sisters aged 12 to 14. Two of them escaped and one was rescued. They were former neighbors from Azusa and recognized Edwards. He knew immediately he would be caught, so that's why he turned himself in. Here's a quote from some of the interview stuff that we looked up. I have a guilt complex. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep and it was beginning to affect my work. You know, I'm a heavy equipment operator. That long grader I'm using now costs a lot of money, $200,000. I might wreck it or turn it over and hurt somebody. Are you Close kidding quote. me? Like, the... <laughs> Well, I mean, we got to talk. I mean, like this is, such I know. A, you know, just to take a very short break from our narrative to talk about some of the rarities in this particular mm. setup is how brutal his crimes are. Yep. And that it's both male and female victims, which is incredibly rare for that specific age range. I mean, this guy was really, really a psychopath. He's a psychopath, but they're kind of all over the place with age range from like teenage boys to kids as young as six, seven. So I can't even say like as far as sexual disorder, if he's truly pedophilic or, you know, because there's like 
prepubescent, postpubescent, and for prepubescent offenders, they actually don't really, they offend against both males and females and don't necessarily have a true preference because I think we've talked about this before, like the right. body type is so similar at that age. So he is all over the place, but it just, yes, this, this psychopathy lends to this quote that you just read too. Well, yeah. And the weird sort of justification and like, you know, I got to make sure that that got to make sure that that equipment doesn't get hurt. Oh yeah. God forbid yeah. I hurt somebody by accident, but you know, right. I just intentionally like, that's okay. Jeez. So additionally, just a couple of other potential victims I want to bring up. There were two missing 11-year-olds from Torrance, which is in the South Bay area. That Those were Karen Lynn Tompkins, and she was walking home from school when she went missing, and Dorothy Gail Brown, who was strangled and found in Marina Del Rey in 1967. Police ended up connecting these two murders due to the proximity of each other, the similar sexual motivations, as well as the ages of the girls. Now, it has not been proven whether or not they do have a connection to Edwards. And I don't really know if there's a connection to Edwards kind of in that South Bay area, but these girls' names come up in every single article that you look at on Edwards. So I think it was worth mentioning. During a preliminary hearing on March 17th, 1970, Mac tried to plead guilty, but the judge refused to accept the plea since it was a capital murder case. And he said, guilty, I'm guilty. I don't need a lawyer. I'm guilty. The judge scheduled Mac's trial for May 6th, 1971. And before that day arrived, Mac somehow acquired tranquilizers and attempted to overdose, but was unsuccessful. He then slashed his stomach with a knife attempting to kill himself again, but the injuries were not fatal. And Mac's trial resumed on May 17th, 1971. He begged for the death penalty during his trial in which he was found guilty. Mac would need to wait until the death penalty phase for a formal death sentence. And sentencing was scheduled for June 5th of the same year. He was eventually sentenced to serve his time in San Quentin while awaiting death. But he ended up taking matters into his own hands and finally died by suicide by by hanging himself in his cell. And of course, police were not convinced that he took a 12-year break and they went on to seek more answers to additional crimes that he did not confess to. It was reported that he had bragged to his cellmates and correctional officers even that there might have been as many as 22 victims, but he only admitted to six in court and two investigators. And in this weird sort of anti-confession letter smuggled out of San Quentin, Edwards recanted a lot of his confessions and then said that he was taking the heat for man, he only identified as Billy the Cripple. That's the name he gave this sort of unidentifiable person. Also, he had an accomplice in the final kidnapping, the one where the three young girls survived. But we couldn't find a mention of who it was or if it was ever discovered or, or legitimized in, in those claims. Police investigators unanimously dismissed the anti-confession as an invention born of Edwards' psychosis, which seems completely possible given how all over the place he is. Yeah. with his actions yeah. and his behaviors. In 2007, cold case detectives reopened the cases of four missing children after finding a letter from Edwards to his wife, Mary. So in that letter, he confessed to other murders, including that of a Redondo Beach boy. In that same letter, Edwards stated, I was going to add one more to the first statement, and that was the Tommy Bowman boy that disappeared in Pasadena. But I felt I would really make a mess of that one, so I left him out. There have been a few missing or murdered children that authorities were able to match with locations where Edwards was working based on Caltrans logs. So yeah. that pretty much would be a pretty strong indicator that they're following his path of where he was able to 
be working and the children being disappeared and also maybe, you know, the disposal of the bodies. It's just oh, it's so sad. Yeah, it's it's overwhelming. And, and what, you know, he talks about making a mess, but what a mess, especially, you know, he's just giving them a little bit, like confessing to six. But yes, they have all these missing kids. So they were able to take a little bit of what he said, you know, where he told them they could find bodies. They found bodies on a lot of them. He was cooperating to that extent, right? Yeah. And he would talk about even, you know, I had to go back and bury the body later because it was raining. And then they would go back and look at Caltrans logs and it would say, yes, he was working on that particular overpass. And on that day, it was raining. So a lot of stuff matched up for sure. Well, when we talk about sort of... When we lean over into the psych area and there's uh, in the materials that you were able to pull, there's a lot of talk about his psychosis without like a lot of information about whether or not that was. And just for a like an elevator pitch version of psychosis, psychosis is an experience where an individual perceives the world incorrectly. Mm-hmm. They are they may hear things that are not actually there. They may see things that are not there. They may feel things that are not there or they may have hard, fixed, delusory beliefs that are not Mm -hmm. true. For most people with severe psychosis, there is also an element of disorganization, which makes it very hard to do things like hold a job. I mean, it really is. It's very hard. And I mean, certainly at that time where there were no medications, the idea that somebody had psychosis and was holding a job and kind of dealing with the stressors of day-to-day life, it's really highly unlikely. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's Maybe it's possible he had mild psychosis and was driven by auditory hallucinations or a belief system, but it doesn't really fit together well with them. You know, if he was like, driven by a hey, belief system... Hey, there's a portal opened up here and they're telling me to kill kids. <laughs> exactly. If he was driven by that, possibly, but then the the stress of carrying that for so many years would just be... Mm-hmm be unbelievable. I mean, when we think about people like the Golden State Killer, it's very clear that this person has so much narcissism, like because he was in control, in control. I think that there would likely be something going on like that, like a severe personality disorder. This guy, I mean, look at the age of his victims. It was always kids, people that he could dominate in some way. Yeah. I mean, when I see that, I think it's just a term perhaps that was written down in a report by an officer, an investigator that, you know, you just don't know how else to explain this horrendous behavior so you say that it's psychotic it's you know there's psychosis here yes and specifically when it is catch-all term yeah like just okay we don't know what to do with this we don't know what to call this monster so here it is also the the way in which we mention it here is they're talking about how to try to explain away this anti-confession letter so of course they're going to say this is bullshit but i don't know if they even had to say it's psychosis they could just say clearly this is a criminal that's trying to elicit some sympathy in the end i don't know but yeah not a lot to support any psychotic issues or formal diagnoses with this guy. I think we can say psychopathic for sure. Clearly sexual compulsive disorder that goes around the area of violence and interest in children of wide range of ages. And so interesting that he's choosing victims that he knows. And not just at the beginning, you know, you think, okay, maybe at the beginning, he would not be comfortable enough to sort of branch out to total strangers. So he picks on his sister-in-law horrifically and her friend. But then at the end... He goes and he picks up three girls that were his neighbors, as well as like his son's friend along the way. Like there's just the high level of impulsivity and lack of inhibition. 
you know, like not yeah. going, well, this could, this can catch me back until he's already in the mix of it. Like he's already in the right. point where he's at past the point of no return. And then he, he backs away from it. So very odd. Maybe, maybe that's some form of leakage for him. Like that was the point at which it was overwhelming and wanted to, he wanted to get caught. I don't know. I don't know. But clearly like with his victims that were known to him, I mean, his plan was to kill them. I mean, he can't let them live. So, yeah, I think I wonder what would have happened if that girl had not escaped. And I always wonder, like, who is this other accomplice? I tend to think, like, if it's not in the documents, I wonder if it was like a young boy, if it was a minor, like someone else that, you know, we've seen cases of that before where adult men kind of use a teenager to lure in other children. Beltway shooters. Um, well, yeah. I mean, that was, that was... Yeah, I just wonder if it was also a child. And so they kind of scrubbed his name and his responsibility from the papers back then. That is a very interesting theory. And I think quite legitimate because it would have been... I mean, certainly for that time, it would have made things a lot more complex. Like, what do you do yeah. with a kid? And if it was somebody that was disabled, you know, True. that makes it even more complex for how do we swing this? What do we do with a kid that, that yeah. is guilty of these? Yeah. Definitely. So additional mystery near Devil's Gate Dam. In 1998, there was a body discovered there of a deceased college student from Occidental College. They were found in muddy debris by Oak Park Grove. And that was near JPL. And they were found by the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Mountain Rescue Team out of Altadena. And that was very close. I mean, that was within a mile from Devil's Gate. But this is just a rugged area still, you know, like you said, yes, it's surrounded by these beautiful old homes, but there's very much, you know, trails and rugged areas that you can get lost in. And when we do get rains, because it's so infrequently, we are prone to flash floods and mud flows, especially if it's been after a pretty disastrous fire season. So it can be very, very dangerous. And so it's there's an area, it's, it's an area like any other where people would get... In, injured or go missing, just not uncommon. So be careful if you're hiking in this area yes. because of those things. But it's a beautiful area. And please do. We've been part of different Southern California hiking groups for years. And there's always somewhere new to discover from through LA County, you know, stretching from the valley all the way out to San Bernardino and Riverside counties. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful area to go out and explore. But this is certainly a dark spot on the history of the area of the Arroyo Seco. Yeah. Don't go alone. Don't go, don't go alone. <laughs> so on my end cap that I want to get back to you, do not miss our Get Vocal this weekend because we are going to have psychic medium and YouTuber Kelsey Davies on. Wow. And she is the one that my daughter was following and was following the story. She is... So much more than a psychic medium and a YouTuber. She's wildly talented and we'll get to know her a little bit better. But she's going to tell us about her paranormal experiences linked to Devil's Gate Dam and the related ghosts that have visited her, including one of the victims, a named victim. So I've also been watching a little bit more recently and she's been talking about another ghost that has come to her that's local to this Pasadena area with kind of another famous story that we could talk about in our monthly vintage episodes. So maybe we'll have her talk a little bit about that too, but it will be great. Please don't miss it. Remember, we do our Get Vocals on Saturdays at 4 p.m. We're only doing them once a month now. So you'll just have to stay tuned to our social media to know when they come up. So for this month, it will definitely be June 11th. 
at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So we will see you guys there. Also streams live on Facebook. And if you're a Patreon member, you can get the audio on your Behind the Couch podcast audio feed, usually the next day. So that's it. Our first vintage episode's done. I just want to... Yes, our first vintage episode. Yay. But I did want to say something about our Get Vocals because we get so many comments from... Just so many listeners saying, I didn't realize it was happening this time. So we we will, you know, we're very diligent about posting it. But I just want to give you a heads up. Like you can't just log on to get vocal. It is a couple of steps. You do have to do it in a browser that works. Firefox is the one or Chrome. Both of those work. It does not work with Safari. And it's completely free. You go to the Get Vocal website, but you do have to sign up and just make yourself a free account. The great thing is, is the chat that goes on Yep. in the discussion while we're talking, especially with some of our recent guests. We get really fantastic questions that are live coming in. I try and monitor the Facebook feed. We can't always guarantee the Facebook feed is going to go through the way we want to. So try and get up on your Get Vocal skills. And also there's tons of other shows on Get Vocal that are really great. I think you'd enjoy. Yeah, they have an app. You can put the app on your phone or your iPad. But if you're going to watch from your computer, just go to their website, Get Vocal. Yeah. You find our channel, LA Not So Confidential. But yeah, stick, stay tuned to our social media because it always, always is going to be announced. And we're going to be better at that since we're not doing it on such a regular basis. It's not going to always follow the week, the bi-weekly psych episode. It'll follow depending on when our guests can be here because we've booked guests mostly throughout the rest of the year. So it's not just Scott and I. So Exactly. Great little public service announcement. Thank you, Dr. Scott. Thanks for joining us, everyone. And we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our podcast production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Esri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is used via a Creative Commons attribution license. Cool Vibes is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod, who graciously allows us to use his great music. Please check out his amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit follow so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast, so you can be the first to be notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and please join us each Saturday afternoon following the episode drop for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on Get Vocal entitled Behind the Couch. Thanks for listening and join us next time. 